Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. So welcome, Lovers of Product. Today, I'm here with Martin Gaspar. Martin is a, a product management consultant, and he has an interesting background and an interesting set of experiences, but I'll let him tell you a little bit about that. Martin, why don't you kick it off by giving us a little overview of your background? Thank you. Yes, yeah, so I graduated with psychology and came out from uni as an AI thought leadership researcher and an AI researcher doing thought leadership stuff. And I got into chatbots and data science. So I created different startups in the chatbot and data science space. Then I went to work for EY, a big company, and then I went on to consult for other different startups as well. I think I've been contracting for over seven years now in the product management, product leadership space. So talk to me about what got you into product to start with. The, the startups got me into it, but I think I was always a product person at heart. I just didn't really know how to name it, how to pinpoint it. it product is quite a new thing as, as a profession. But yes, I've always loved getting down to the root of the things, understanding and just making things better, really. So talk to me a little bit about your experiences, both at startups and at the large companies. What did you like and didn't like about each of those? I really enjoy if a startup is run well. The speed, the excitement, the level of execution and risk-taking can be really extraordinary. In big companies, there's a wealth of knowledge within the companies. So it's really interesting that you can just tap into all those stakeholders if you'd like. And that's quite fascinating. I personally prefer smaller companies, maybe because of my neurodiversity as well, and maybe because of the, the speed of execution, risk-taking abilities, and yeah, so that brings up something interesting for a lot of our listeners. They, they probably don't know about your neurodiverse background. Talk to me about that. Talk, let's talk about neurodiversity in tech. And you made a viral video called Working with Autism, Powers and Challenges. Can you talk to me about that? Yeah, so I, I was diagnosed with ADHD at age eight and with autism and dyspraxia at age 30. So neurodiversity is a range of different conditions people may have and it affects everyone. Either you have it or someone within your friends, family, or colleagues have it. And I have been thinking and I have been trying to, I have been telling people I was open about this. I told them I'm autistic and they didn't really know what to do with it. And it's, it has nothing to do with them. It's not because they're evil. It's simply because there's not enough awareness around this topic. And I really think there should be. So I started making videos and content on LinkedIn to help raise awareness on neurodiversity, specifically in tech. The reason why I'm really passionate about it is because innovation comes from more and better ideas. When neurodiverse people have a different type of brain, their brain literally develops differently. So you put them in the room with other people and they're going to have different set of ideas. And that's at the heart of product. Like we have to come up with really good ideas, really deep, insightful ones to solve complex customer problems simply. So yeah, neurodiversity is, you're missing out if you don't have neurodiverse people in your team, quite frankly. 
Now, now talk to me about how that's affected your work, both the uh, superpowers it's given you and the challenges it's posed. So I think it affected me all throughout my life. I didn't know why I was different or how, because I only got diagnosed at 30. That also affected the way my career developed. And I mean, only 2.4% of people with autism even graduate from university. So you're not going to have, even if people do so, you're not going to find a really typical background, which I don't have as well. I've worked for a lot of different companies in many different industries. So that has a lot of challenges, but also a lot of advantages because now I know at least to some level about a lot of different topics. What's really, really good or what works for me as being autistic is I always able to bring a new perspective, a different type of idea to any meeting I go to. And as a consultant, it comes really handy because people rely on you to come up with ideas that they never would have seen before. There are some challenges with it as well, of course. For example, the way I manage stakeholders are, well, there isn't just one way of managing stakeholders. But for example, at a larger company, what people want often is to be very diplomatic and walk on eggshells around them and to do a lot of small talk. Well, that's not particularly my wheelhouse. The way I normally get through to people is I make sure that I show them that I really love and care about them, but also I'm really logical. So autistic brain tends to be really direct and really literal. So what I'm really good at, and some of my peers as well, I'm sure, is dissecting a problem, getting it down to to the bottom, to the root cause of it, and operate from first principles, build out arguments from there. So as a summary, the way I manage stakeholders is by really deeply focusing on whatever they want and with honesty and logic rather than diplomacy. I'm not saying I'm not diplomatic at all, but the key difference is that I will always be straight and upfront with you rather than than hide things, if it makes sense. Yeah, no, I I think that makes a lot of sense. So, you know, you're obviously a big advocate for neurodiversity in tech. You know, tell me why. So there are two reasons. One of them is initially started off me wanting to be more understood. And when I told people I'm autistic, they didn't know what to do. And I realized that they just need to simply do more. But also companies, they're just leaving money on the table if they don't do diversity well, all sorts of inclusion, including neurodiversity as well. And I was really shocked that not many people are talking about this topic. And also I know, and ever since my video, I've, I've met a lot more people. I get many, many emails and different requests telling me, they're coming out to me, they're saying that they are neurodiverse and they're not able to tell this to their company. They're afraid. And that just breaks my heart. People should own who they are we are different, not less. And there, there shouldn't be any stigma around this. You are who you are and you are great at your job. Everyone has different strengths and weaknesses. And a good team will try to uncover that in people, uncover their strengths and weaknesses, help them overcome their weaknesses and play on their strength. That's why we are better than the sum of our parts in a good team. Yeah, no, Absolutely. Talk to me a little bit more about, you know, how having neurodiverse people in a team, in an organization, leads to making better teams, better business decisions, better products. Okay, so first of all, diversity, 
not just neurodiversity, diversity helps because if you get a bunch of people who come from the same school, the same background, they're going to have the same ideas that your competition will have as well. So diversity in general will help you generate different ideas because you're underst- you're able to empathize from different angles as well from your customers and also with the business as well and the stakeholders and also to come up with different ideas. Now, it doesn't just happen. You don't just put a bunch of diverse people in and magic will automatically happen. You have to have a culture which relies on autonomy, which relies on respect, which promotes you stress, the positive stress when people are happy to talk to each other, challenge each other's ideas and intellectually spar and come up with a better solution driven by the outcomes and if you can get all of that together in your company, you have something magical in your hands. This is not, by the way, this is not just something I dreamt of. I had a startup, I had 11 people, and we had such a fantastic synergy and connection and such good arguments that we were able to solve really complex problems uh, to an exceptional level. Th- this is possible. It's not easy to do. But if you can do this, and if you can integrate diverse and neurodiverse people into this culture, that's when true innovation, that's where the magic happens. So advice, you know, for people that are thinking about this, that are starting up startups now, how do you get them to think more about creating a culture that enables diverse people to work better together? Open communication, psychological safety, you really have to be self-aware. So anytime anyone tells you anything, normally those people are coming from a good place. Even if they're criticizing you, they're actually trying to help you. That's just their way of expressing themselves. So basically, if you're starting a company or if you already have a company, you have to be really brave and you have to allow and promote and reward behaviors when people challenge you for the right reasons. I'm not saying promote troublemakers who just argue with you for no reason. But if you're actually trying to solve a difficult challenge, you have to embrace people's ideas and you have to respectfully handle them and challenge them back based on valid logical points, not feelings. If you're able to promote that kind of behavior, people will always be honest with you. They will respect you. They will come to you with ideas. And that's why you want to work with brilliant people for their thoughts. If you stifle that, how good is that? I, I don't think that's a recipe for sustainability. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, I, I think there's a ton of value, especially as we as product builders are building for larger audiences to not have the diversity on our team and not build a culture around that makes it harder for us to build the product that's going to win because we can't just build something that's purely for ourselves as we you know, grow into like the mass market, right? Exactly. So, you know, one of the things you do as a consultant is act as a mentor for product managers. Talk to me about that experience. Yeah, so I mentor people from early on, even before they start product or when they're just starting product to up to quite senior level. I just love it. I am learning a lot from that experience. And I think with my analytical thinking and always trying to drive things back to first principles, I can really help people achieve their goals, whatever they may be. I had a lot of success through my mentees in that process. And essentially, I'm a leader, which means I'm happiest if my people prevail and and they achieve good results. 
So mentoring is a really good way to, to give back and to help people just really get better. I have been mentored for the last 10 years as well, and I would have not been where I am without that objective mirror, without always being pushed and challenged. And I, I just hope that more and more people will, not just at the executive level, will start having mentoring and coaching in their life because you need to unlock your true potential. And that's a great way to do it. So junior PMs, where do you think they need the most mentorship? Uh, and what's your advice to them? It depends what baggage they have, but the most common things usually are focus on outcomes. I know it sounds like a cliche, but it's really easy. What I see a lot in junior people is they get lost in what they have done instead of what they have achieved, which is especially as product people, that's what we're normally being judged at. And once I have a deeper conversation with them and I teach them the framework to uncover the outcome-focused thinking, that's when they normally have their, their first big breakthroughs and they start to rewrite their whole life story on how they got to where they are. And I think that's hugely powerful. Now, another thing you spend a lot of time at in consulting is product discovery. So talk to us about good product discovery. What does it look like? It's continuous, it's inclusive, you have the whole team at some point, engineering and design as well with you. And one of the key things is that you shouldn't try to ask customers what they think. You should try to ask them what they actually do. So if, if you ask me how often do I go to the gym, I'll tell you three times a week. But if you ask me when was the last time I've been in the gym, well, it was before COVID. So if you help people to go through what they're actually doing and tell them to give you past experiences observe it or, or use a lot of methods to see how they're going through that process, that's when you're going to have the best kind of nuggets, I think, from real behavior rather than perceived behavior. People are not trying to scam you. That's just how our brain works. Our ideal self is different from our actual self. Everyone has a difference there. And the closest you can get to their actual self, the closest you can get to how they are trying to use your product or what are their actual challenges are. So is, is that a matter of digging deep, like not being satisfied with the first answer or maybe even just approaching getting to an answer from a couple different ways? Well, initially, you shouldn't even try to look for an answer. You should just let them tell their story. Just ask them a specific example. When was the last time you have used this product? How was it? What did you do? What mindset were you in? What did you feel? Just talk me through the process and try to ask them about the process itself that they were going through and the reasons behind it, rather than, I don't know, what normally people focus on. So if you're looking at people that you're doing consulting for and mentorees, what do you think people get, what do you think people get wrong most with product discovery? Well, firstly, I think they don't do it enough. And secondly, there's a lot of the times I can see discovery as let me confirm what I already know rather than try to going at it at a, with a scientific mindset like let me see if that hypothesis actually works or not. And that, that's one of the key things. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. So when you're working with people, how do you kind of instill that kind of methodology? Is, do you have a process for that? There are, well, it, it depends how the company is structured, but it normally starts with a lot of questions. 
So for example, a company wanted to hire me full-time to build something in two years. And I told them I can build it in two months, hire me as a contractor. They said, sure. The way that started is I asked them a bunch of questions about what do they actually want to achieve? Because even at the executive level, a lot of people don't necessarily think in outcomes or they don't break it down to small bite-sized chunks, which is a large part of product thinking, arguably. That's why we need it more and more in business. So firstly, I really want to make sure that we understand the why and understand the scope of the actual project and what makes the biggest outcomes. Then create alignment. And once we really understand the problem, we have the stakeholders, we mapped everything out, then and only then we'll start building uh, even prototypes. I'm not even talking about code at this point. It's understanding the problem is what's most crucial. Because if you're building on a wrong foundation, you're never going to get there. Yeah, that's 100% true, right? Performance, you know, part of high-performing teams is, you know, doing the work you were talking about with product discovery. What else do you look for and, and coach towards when you're helping people build high-performing teams? Autonomy is key. A lot of the times why I see PMs get lost in the day-to-day execution and they don't dare to challenge, is this actually my job? Am I the one who should be doing this? And it's not just PMs, by the way, it's all across the board. People don't really think at times, how can we do this differently? They, they just accept this is how we were doing it. We had kind of a process that we initially came up with. And especially if you have a growing team. Yes, it's fantastic that you have a process that works. But as you grow, that needs to be re-understood, reassembled. And there's a lot of value that can be done there. How can we keep that autonomy? How can we keep the processes in a way that we're not process heavy, yet we're not yet we trust it and we're still able to work through everything we need efficiently is really important. So what does the makeup of a high-performing team look like? But it starts with great management who have a vision and can articulate that vision and can come up with KPIs, OKRs, whatever, to guide that vision and to make decision-making really easy and simple. It definitely has to be the new type of management, not the old type of executives who tell you what they want, but the type of executives who want to test everything and want to make sure that people who are closest to the problem are the ones who are coming up with solutions. There needs to be a continuous thirst for talking to users, for testing, for experimenting, and for trying everything out and merging qualitative and quantitative data. And of course, you must be inclusive. You have to make sure that you give people autonomy, you give them employee voice, they need to speak up, they, they are open, they're free to challenge each other, they actually belong there. They are in tune with the mission, they love the people who they are working with, even if they are different, even if they are quirky. They give each other the benefit of the doubt, and they have open, good communication. Communication is one of the key things that can make a team high-performing or not. It's not necessarily the abilities. And a lot of this comes down to hiring, right? How do you, uh, what advice would you give to HR people or recruiters that are hiring PMs in order to build, to help the PM leaders build these teams? So there are different angles I can 
answer this from the neurodiversity or just general hiring point of view. But one of the things that I see a lot of the times is people are really obsessed with past experience. And while I appreciate that past experience is or can be a good predictor of future experience or future performance, but a lot of the times what we do have a lot of transferable skills in it. So if we were to broaden our horizon from, yes, I had a SaaS product manager, I need a SaaS product manager with four years of experience to, okay, so what are the essential skills of a product manager who would be good uh, managing a SaaS product? And looking a bit broadening our horizon and trying to get people in more diversely, that's already a really good start. And then the second step is the interview process as well. How do you make sure that interview process is not aimed and geared to reject people, but rather than to give people a chance to show what they can actually do? That's also really, really crucial, both for hiring for diversity, neurodiversity. But again, I always hire people for attitude rather than than a stellar CV. If they have the right attitude, if I can push them in the interview, if I can ask them hard questions and they'll be able to reflect, be honest, be genuine, be humble, be vulnerable, and also come up with really good ideas, I think that's kind of the recipe for success. If you hire people with great attitude, everything else is teachable. If you hire someone with experience about the bad attitude, it it doesn't matter that they've done it before. You're going to have one disagreement, you're going to have a fallout, and you have lost three years of their annual wage in, in a person who just left the company. You need to build this cohesive culture where you can challenge and grow with people rather than just get someone who's, who, who will fit in, slide in straight to that cog. Yeah, I think that's a good point. You know, uh, a lot of PMs and a lot of hiring managers look at things purely from an experience perspective, which is a good way maybe to gauge some of their technical skills or some of the things they've been exposed to. But part of it, like you just mentioned, is the soft skills, like attitude. What other soft skills do you think are important as you're hiring for PMs? Integrity, adoptability. Like integrity is not something that you can buy, right? Adoptability, like flexibility, is one of the highest performing soft skill factors that determines job satisfaction and and the employee employee performance as well. Yeah, I mean, general attitude. And I mean, what I'm always looking for is self-awareness and reflection. Because it doesn't matter how much experience you have if you don't have the ability to reflect on what you've done and if you don't have the desire to make things better. So I think reflection is very, very key as well. Now, I know we touched on some of it, but any other advice you'd give to recruiters or hiring managers if they're trying to build more diverse product teams? I mean, you have to, you have to start with attraction. If you're going to have a basic job spec that's going to have a basic sentence in it that we do diversion, uh, we do diversity, I will not believe you. Unless you can show me through the job spec as well what you do uh, with, with concrete steps to promote people and to make sure that people actually fit in and belong, that is the first step to get my attention, right? Because we're all trying to get, we are actually fighting for the best talent. If you're doing that, you have to make sure that every single step of the process that you do is fantastic. 
that starts with attracting the right talent. That starts with dealing with them in the right way. That starts that carries on with having the right interview process where you able to facilitate people with different needs. Let me give you an example. If someone's dyslexic, some dyslexic people have a really hard time answering a question on the spot. Give them five minutes to independently think about the answer. They will come up with a fantastic answer. You just have to give them the space to do it. The same way with introverts. Autistic people, a lot of hiring managers think they're Freud and they will judge you based on body language, facial expression and tone. Well, guess what? That does not work with autistic people. My face doesn't always do and reflect how I feel. My tone can be robotic. It doesn't mean that I'm not able to do the task. It just means that I, on occasion, look slightly differently. It has nothing to do with my abilities. If you're not able to overcome this, then probably you're not equipped to hire for diversity. Thanks. Yeah, I think that's a good point, you know, because a lot of times, especially with, you know, body language, a lot of times we do interpret a lot based on a person's body language. And the example you just, you know, cited, it, it might lead to the wrong interpretation. Exactly. Absolutely. And is there really what's necessary to hire someone? One thing I hear a lot as well is you're not a good cultural fit. And that's like the easy blanket statement to reject someone very really articulate what's up with them. They're just a little bit different to what you would expect it. And a lot of times when I hear that, if I ask, so what is your culture actually? People can't really d- describe it. So if you want a more inclusive hiring process, you need to adjust the measures of how you, or how you assess and what you give higher importance to things like actual performance on the interview rather than the eyes they gave you or, or the, the extra stare you've received. Yeah, I think that's a good point too. A lot of times we confuse ourselves with culture, right? Hiring for a cultural fit does not mean hiring someone that looks or acts like you. It's about some of those soft skills you talked about. Like, you know, do we hire people that have, you know, a desire to experiment, right? Because experimentation might be part of your corporate culture for your startup. Do you hire people that are data oriented because that, and that has nothing to do with, you know, how they might respond to a particular question or how they look or how they act, right? So we need to make sure when we're hiring that we don't confuse what culture really means. Uh, And I think part of that is having a good set of core values and understanding that culture should be tied to core values, not necessarily to whether you'd want to go out and have a coffee or drink with this person. Yeah, exactly. You have to hire for cultural ed if you want to include diverse people who share your same core values. The only issue with that, what you said is, I do think that you're absolutely right. It's just really difficult to come up with those core values that you actually believe in and embody it. I would really hope that managers and startup founders would just get better at it. And that would help all of us to hire better and to fit better people in and we could just build better products, really. Yeah, I, I know with Pendo, you know, we spent a lot of time, Shannon Bauman was one of the driving forces. He was an ex-Google PM who was uh, early at Pendo. We spent a lot of time thinking about what the core values of Pendo should be and why. And I think that time was really well spent from a standpoint of when we did go through rapid hiring phases, we could look back and rely on those core values to 
help our hiring decisions. And when we're promoting people or firing people, they can be a basis for those decisions too. And I do recommend, and and I'd love to get your input on this too, about, you know, should startups take that time to really establish that foundation, you know, upfront? And maybe they look at it every once in a while on an ongoing basis, but I think there's a lot of value to establishing and codifying those core values because those become the basis for your culture, right? Absolutely. And I'm really, really glad that you agree and that you actually spent the time and, you know, like you're using them the right way to guide your hiring and, and the promotion, all the internal processes. I think they're just fantastic. And we need more people and startups like you. Do startups need to do that? Well, it depends on the scale, right? If you're a startup who is on track to find product market fit and is not running out of money and is really ambitious, I absolutely think you have to, yes, I think it's core to establish it and to keep revisiting it and make your whole decisions based on it because startups can grow so rapidly that it's so easy to just lose sight of it and then you just become an empty corporate vessel rather than the fiery, passionate team that that you really want to be. So yeah, I really do think it's time well spent for the startup as well, but for the management team as well to bond and to really understand each other and grow closer because they're the ones who are guarding the fire, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I would argue that it's time well spent for everyone from the standpoint of it helps you avoid those bad decisions where you hire someone because you think they're a cultural fit, but they don't really adhere to your core values or your management's hiring in different ways because they don't aren't aligned on what your core values are. Yeah, exactly. All, all of those, all the vision and everything that, that management and leadership sets out, there's a purpose for it. It needs to be a tiebreaker. It needs to guide. It needs to help people navigate and show them what's acceptable. So yeah, if you have that, Yes, I understand that upfront, there's some investment and I get that it's really difficult to do. But in the long run, it will make everything so much easier because people, it it promotes autonomy. People will just know what to do and what's expected of them, which is very liberating, actually. Absolutely. I think it, it helps people understand what you expect of them. So there's no confusion. And they can figure out early on if, if they are a good fit for your company, as opposed to, you know, six, nine months realizing that th- their core values aren't in alignment with the company's or management's core values. Exactly. And there's nothing wrong with it as long as you know and you choose based on it on both sides, on the employee and employer side as well. Absolutely. It, so talk to me a little bit about the future of product management. What do you see as trends for the future? Well, I can only hope that more and more modern product organizations will develop and people will just get product thinking more and understand that that experimentation and bottom-up decision-making, getting customers involved is the right way to move forward as we see it with quite a few great examples that are already there. I also really hope that people will get diversity more and will be able to create more inclusive environments, but these are all hopes. Do you see that happening? I mean, you've been in product management for a little while right now. Do you see, you know, especially, you know, tech companies, do you see them becoming more diverse, both from a racial, a viewpoint perspective, a neurodiversity perspective? Do you see that happening? From neurodiversity perspective, 
Honestly, I only know a handful of companies who are even conscious of it. And that's one of the reasons why I'm I'm doing my awareness campaigns, because I want them to understand that that is part of your success. I think I have a relatively small subset, so I'm not sure if I'm qualified to talk to you about the trends that I see in in, in companies. I see many startups who have old school type management as well and will never ever get to product thinking. But I also see a lot of inspiring people and I see a lot of appetite for more knowledge and thirst about product management. And as long as you have that, as long as you have the appetite and you want to get there, I do think there's hope and you will. Awesome. Well, let's talk about Marton for a second. What's your favorite product? Well, I really like my my robot vacuum. I must say it makes my flat really clean and saves me a lot of hassle. I like it. We have one of those here too. I, I'm, a, I'm a fan. My dog, not as much of a fan of the robot vacuum. It's kind of funny watching their interactions. Uh, but uh, I am a, a fan of the robot vacuum. So one final question for you today. Uh, three words to describe yourself. Brave, curious, genuine. Well, thanks, Martin. This has been great. I've really enjoyed our conversation. And uh, I think hopefully it makes people think about diversity, especially neurodiversity, in maybe a different way than they've thought about before. I really hope. And if they have any questions, they can always reach out to me. I'm really happy to talk to people who want to make a difference and who want to make really exceptional product teams and companies. Thank you so much for for hosting me. It was fantastic talking to you. Thank you. I appreciate it.